It's certainly the biggest investigation I've ever seen outside an anti-terrorist investigation. You're practicing cutting someone there, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, I think, I think all teenagers go through that phase. One of your then senior colleagues said to me, our best hope of getting justice in this case is if one of the Lawrence suspects finds God. We had to re-investigate just about everything and just seek the truth. We found, very much to our surprise, that there was a flake of blood. I remember looking at him and thinking, well, I've got to tell you, my old mate, it ain't going to be long now. I'm Stephen Wright, and this is the Mail Plus true crime series, Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain. Episode 4, A Flake of Blood. The damning conclusions of the Stephen Lawrence public inquiry had nearly cost Sir Paul Condon his job as head of the Metropolitan Police. In 1999, on the day the McPherson report was released, Sir Paul vowed his force would hunt down what he called the scum who had murdered Stephen. Weeks later, the five then prime suspects decided to finally break their silence about their movements on the night of Stephen's death in 1993, and a damning police surveillance video in December the following year, which exposed their extreme racism and obsession with knives and violence. Little did they realise that while being interviewed for TV, they were at the centre of a huge police surveillance operation using tactics which wouldn't look out of place in a Bond movie. Just before the McPherson Inquiry report was published, the Met had launched a top-secret new investigation into Stephen's murder. Codenamed Operation Athena Tower, it was led by Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Grieve. It was a no-expense-spared attempt to catch Stephen's killers and rescue the Met's battered reputation. The man who was being lined up to be Sir Paul Condon's successor, his deputy, John Stevens, an old-fashioned thief-taker in the true traditions of the Met, had appointed Grieve to head a new probe into the case. Ex-Met DCI Clive Driscoll. It's certainly the biggest investigation I've ever seen outside an anti-terrorist investigation. Grieve, who had previously been in charge of Scotland Yard's anti-terror branch, was also an old-school detective, affectionately known by colleagues as JG and renowned for his, quote, lawfully audacious police tactics. If anyone could solve the Lawrence case, thought then Deputy Commissioner Stevens, it was Grieve. Not only was Grieve handed a blank cheque to bring Stephen's murderers to justice, but he was also told he could recruit the best detectives in the force. The Met were under huge pressure at the time, facing legal action from the Lawrence family, and would later pay out £320,000 in compensation to Stephen's parents for the litany of mistakes in the case. The force knew 
that catching the killers was the only way they could make it right, both to the Lawrences and in the eyes of the wider public. They threw everything behind the investigation. At its peak, 120 officers were working on Operation Athena Tower, which lasted four years and cost millions of pounds. One former senior officer told me Greaves' team had every piece of kit you'd ever heard of. It was pure 007. Yard chiefs were in constant contact with the then Home Secretary Jack Straw, the only person who could authorise telephone intercepts on suspects. John Stevens is a very experienced investigative officer, so he was the right person to do that, and other senior officers were put onto this, and they really, they really did want to get to the, to the bottom of it, absolutely. Legendary Met Assistant Commissioner Dave Vanessa approved dozens of bugging operations on the suspects' cars, homes and workplaces, while a surveillance team was constantly on their trail. Over the years, a number of former officers have told me that the suspects were incredibly anti-surveillance aware. They were wary about being followed, going around roundabouts multiple times and constantly doing U-turns in the street to shake off any detectives following them. They would meet in the middle of parkland and then lock arms and look in different directions as they spoke to each other. It was during Operation Athena Tower that Scotland Yard bought a house in the same street as one of the murder suspects and an undercover officer was tasked with befriending him and infiltrating the gang. For the Met, the possibility of buying a house was just too good an opportunity to miss. Very early on, there were fears that the undercover officer had been rumbled by one of the murder suspects and consideration was given to pulling him out of the daring mission there and then. Tension was high in the nerve centre of the police surveillance operation. What if the undercover officer was attacked? Then the grieve inquiry was handed another investigative opportunity. An extraordinary collaboration with a primetime ITV current affairs show. Welcome back. Lawyers acting for Stephen Lawrence's parents have claimed... Two months after Operation Athena Tower started, the five then Lawrence suspects, Gary Dobson, Neil and Jamie Acourt, David Norris and Luke Knight, agreed to be interviewed by star TV presenter Martin Bashir on ITV's Tonight with Trevor MacDonald. We must warn you that this next film contains particularly strong and offensive language and views which many people will find repugnant. Programme makers were in close contact with the Met before recording, but for legal reasons, detectives ruled out planting questions in Bashir's interview. Had they done so, defence lawyers could have argued they'd used Bashir as an agent of the police, scuppering the possibility of using it as evidence at any future trial. All five men who appeared on the ITV documentary denied involvement in Stephen's killing, and only two of them, Gary Dobson and David Norris, have ever been convicted. In December, the police put a secret camera in Gary Dobson's flat. On the show itself, viewers saw the astonishing excuses the men gave for their behaviour in the police surveillance footage recorded in 1994. 
the so-called video of hate. Were you sort of fascinated by knives? No, not at all. Have you got a thing about knives? No. Bashir interviewed the young men about their behaviour in the covert footage, but they repeatedly denied it was sinister. What is he demonstrating? I don't believe he's demonstrating stabbing someone, but he was, he was stabbing the chair, obviously, and there was nothing meant by it. Many people regarded their comments as laughable. You're practising cutting someone there, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I think, I think all teenagers go through that phase. I'm not saying to that extreme, because that, whatever, you can put it how you like, but all teenagers do it. Well, in you, a... Hang on, you just said yeah. that in general terms, yeah. you are not racist. You're only racist towards people right. who upset you. Mm. Yet here you say, I reckon that every should be yeah. chopped up, mate, and they should be left with nothing but stumps. Right. What are you, what is that but a general racist for you? That's banter. That's exactly what it is. We've, we've never pretended to be angels. We've never pretended to be anyone else but ourselves. So were you a group of little on the estate? Yeah, rascals, lo lovable rogues. Everybody watching that night saw just how unpleasant these men could be. But they all deny being involved in Stephen's murder. I mean, I had fights in school. I've never said that I was an angel, but I've never used knives and I've never stabbed anyone or I've never killed anyone. Bedrooms and other pre-selected rooms in the secret house in Scotland, where the Bashir interview was filmed, had recording devices installed. Scotland Yard even had a helicopter hover over the group as they played golf nearby, recording their comments, relayed by satellite from tiny microphones hidden in their golf trolleys. But the bugged golf buggies did not provide any new leads, and neither did the TV show. As well as the James Bond tactics, which also included bugging pubs and snooker halls frequented by the gang, Operation Athena Tower also contacted a number of murder witnesses from the original investigation, including French au pair Alexandra Marie, who had seen Stephen's murder. She had been living in Reunion Island and later South Africa and had lost touch with the Met. Seven years on, she was still baffled as to why she'd never been asked to attend an ID parade of suspects. The day after, I get the descriptions of the two people um, getting into the bus the night of the murder. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an ID parade and I wasn't invited to the ID parade. But I didn't know that at all. And I've never heard of the public in inquiry. I have not been warned. But I had my own life and I had my own uh, fight against racism. But when John Greaves' detectives contacted her, she willingly travelled to London to try to help again. I went back to England in 2000 to give further evidence to the police. So I went back there and they took me at the murder scene and I was like I'm sorry I don't remember anything I don't remember there's no images and I couldn't I, I couldn't tell them anything I had forgotten everything it was a remarkable investigation I know of other cases where the police have used such tactics like buying houses next to suspects but the scale of Athena Tower really shows the desire in the force to atone for the mistakes of the past doesn't it, Clive? They really tried absolutely 
everything they could. And in 2002, they, they gave all of what they gathered to the Crown Prosecution Service. Mm. And in 2004, the Crown Prosecution Service actually said we, we, we didn't have enough. In fact, they were quite severe in saying that we weren't close, really. We've looked very carefully at all that evidence, but have not uh, been able to uh, mount a prosecution. There was not a realistic prospect of conviction. On the day the Lawrences were told in 2004 that once again the Met were unable to bring those suspected of Stephen's murder to trial, Doreen Lawrence gave this statement through her lawyer, Imran Khan. It has been a long 11 years since the murder of my son Stephen. For each and every second of those years, Stephen has never left my thoughts. The decision today not to prosecute anyone in relation to Stephen's murder has been a devastating one for me. Whilst I expected this outcome, there was still some glimmer of hope that justice would prevail. My son Stephen deserved better. I remember when the John Grieve investigation resulted in no charges, uh, one of your then senior colleagues said to me, uh, our best hope of getting justice in this case is if one of the Lawrence suspects finds God and decides to tell all. That's how dismal the prospects of justice in the case were at a high level at the time. You know, it was bleak. There's no doubt about it. They highlighted some of the mistakes we'd had. And really, Athena Tau had, had really gone into it in great, great, great depth. And we can almost understand what the police officer was saying because people did feel that maybe that was, that was the end of the road, I guess. Operation Athena Tower was seen by many in the force as a last throw of the dice to get justice. But the bottom line was that it hadn't secured the necessary evidence to get anywhere near new Lawrence murder charges. In 2002, David Norris and Neil Acourt were jailed for 18 months after being found guilty of racially abusing a black policeman close to where Stephen was murdered but nobody had been held to account over his death. It happened last year as police officer Gareth Reed left this railway station in Eltham, just yards from where Stephen Lawrence was killed. Norris and Acourt were in a car. Norris threw a drink carton at the officer and shouted an offensive racist insult. Acourt deliberately drove at him. But the officer recognised them because of the Lawrence case and they were charged after he had the drinks carton DNA tested. But it wasn't just the lack of evidence against the five then-prime suspects that stood in the way of justice for Stephen. The British legal system itself meant that three of them, Neil Acourt, Luke Knight and Gary Dobson, could not stand trial for his murder again after being cleared at the Lawrence family's ill-fated private prosecution in 1996. Following representations from Brian McKenzie's Police Superintendents Association, the McPherson inquiry had recommended a change in the double jeopardy law which prevented someone cleared of murder standing trial again for the same case. Brian's view was that miscarriages of justice had occurred if someone had been wrongly cleared of murder and new evidence had proved this to be the case. 
In fact, it was at the Police Superintendents Association annual conference in September 1997 that I asked Jack Straw, the then new Labour Home Secretary, about Brian's calls to change the law, and he was very reluctant to support it, publicly at least. The lobby in favour of the status quo in the criminal justice system is a very strong one. I mean, ironically, it's normally from the left, from civil liberties group and left-wing lawyers, not the other way around. But the irony of, of, of this, however, was that this was a recommendation from an inquiry which was plainly on the side of an innocent black lad who'd been murdered and whose murderers were known publicly and to the police, but who could not be convicted of these crimes. So then it was very much more difficult to argue. I mean, my guess is that Mike Mansfield, who was the lead counsel for the Lawrences and a man with a great and justified radical reputation, in any other circumstances, he would have opposed the ending of the absolute double jeopardy rule. But of course, he, he didn't and he couldn't because it was the only means possible uh, even bringing one or two of these thugs to court. It wasn't just Stephen's case that was driving calls for a change in the double jeopardy law. Brian McKenzie had concerns over the case of Billy Dunlop, who had confessed to murdering Julie Hogg after being acquitted of killing her. There was also an outcry after Ronnie Knight, an ex-husband of the actress Barbara Windsor, bragged he'd got away with murder after being cleared of involvement in a gangland killing. DNA techniques had improved greatly in the preceding decade, meaning many cases that had failed due to a lack of evidence could now be solved by science. All they needed was the chance to try again. Nazir Assel, you were a senior lawyer for the Crown Prosecution Service at the time. How big a deal was this proposed change in the law? It clearly is a big thing. And therefore, what the prosecutors felt was absolutely we wanted the ability to bring this about for this law to pass, but there had to be checks and balances. And so there was a Law Commission report, there was a, a number of other academic reports, and ultimately we agreed on the process. There had to be a process. It couldn't just be a prosecutor waking up one morning and saying, well, I'm going to prosecute that guy again from yesterday. That doesn't work. So the process was that the each and every case had to go to the Court of Appeal to decide, and that only cases where there was new and compelling evidence would be overturned, in effect, by the Court of Appeal. And that the only people that could bring that case to the Court of Appeal's attention was the Attorney General. So there was a significant set of hurdles or rules put in place to ensure that it was not abused, so that you and I were protected and continue to be protected if we've been found not guilty of a crime. But in those exceptional circumstances, that there would potentially be maybe some DNA or some new witnesses. That meant that there should be the opportunity, as there now is, for cases to be retried uh, where it's appropriate. In 2005, after years of review, the double jeopardy law was finally amended. A suspect could now be retried on the same charge, but only if new and compelling evidence was found against them. The law change opened up the possibility of a second trial in the Lawrence case if new evidence was found, putting the onus back on the Met.
It was almost by chance that the Lawrence investigation reopened in 2006. Clive Driscoll had recently become a detective chief inspector in the Met. One of the things that I was asked to do was to go to Deptford Police Station because we'd sold it, like many of our police stations, we'd sold it. And in fact, I was asked to go to Deptford Police Station to make sure that we hadn't left anything there because traditionally we're quite bad at that, that when we leave police stations, we tend to leave things in them. And so I remember going there and, and I remember walking around and coming to this office. It, it was a, you know, a, a fairly big room. It was probably about 40 foot by 15 foot and all of the papers in there was Operation Fishball. It was the Stephen Lawrence murder. And so I went back and spoke to then Commander Cressida Dick and said, well, look, you know, I'll take it on. I'm very happy to take it on. Commander Dick said that she had to go and speak to Mr John Yates because he was a DAC, I believe, at the time. And eventually it came down on the 20th of June 2006. I was appointed the SIO. Basically, the inquiry had been put into cold storage, hadn't it? I can't think for a minute that it wouldn't have been reinvestigated. It was just a question of how long and when there would be new leads or a new appetite to solve it. I imagine it must have been quite daunting to see the number of documents in the case. 13 years, multiple investigations, a private prosecution, an inquest and the McPherson inquiry. How do you get your head around that amount of detail? You actually look at it and think, well, I suppose I've got to start somewhere. I'll I'll start at the start. One of the things that, that I was very keen on was because of uh, the vast investigation that was Athena Tower, there were papers all over London. There were papers that were up Scotland Yard. There were play- papers that were in a place down in Wimbledon. There were papers that were over a Shooter's Hill way, even though we'd sold the police station. The very first thing we did was make sure that we got every bit of paper that we could in relation So because one of the the big things you have to do in any investigation if you get to a prosecution stage is disclose. And so you have to be sure that you can say to the defence that you're disclosing everything and you have to make sure you've got that before you can say it. But one of the, the, the early things, I was advised to watch a PowerPoint which had been shown to the family, had been shown to the legal folk, been shown to senior officers. And this PowerPoint, I was told, would be a very good starting point. It was where we were on the 20th of June 2006 and that I could rely on that PowerPoint. I was told, both in a PowerPoint and by police officers, that one of my main bus stop witnesses, Mr Royston Westbrook, was dead and that that avenue to me wasn't open. Now, when I spoke to Mr Royston Westbrook, he said he wasn't. So it's actually difficult to understand who to believe, really. The case files were in a mess and it was exposing the errors in the earlier investigations. We had to re-investigate just about everything and just seek the truth. Go for it. Find out what exactly had happened and try my hardest to repair the trust in the police or in our investigation. One of the first, and I would say most significant decisions you made in your investigation was to reassess the forensics, wasn't it? I actually decided to move the forensics away from the Forensic Science Service, which was down at Vauxhall, to Grandeur Gallup's place up in just outside Oxford. 
And that was just because I thought a fresh pair of eyes would look at it. Professor Angela Gallup is a top forensic scientist and expert in cold case reviews, as well as being the author of a memoir on her big cases called When the Dogs Don't Bark. In 2006, the Metropolitan Police approached us. She had a similar approach to DCI Driscoll when it came to conducting a reinvestigation. We had learnt that you start at the crime scene, so you don't do anything until you understand what had actually happened. And I think I'd got so used to people saying, oh, yeah, we know roughly what happened at the crime scene. It was this and it was that and the other. And then we'd learnt over the years, if you actually went and had a look at it, even if it's years after the event, it's really instructive to go back to the crime scene. It's a really important first step because you get an idea of the geography and the topography of it, what's possible, what's not possible and what's likely and what couldn't have happened, what could have happened. So we went back to the crime scene and read lots of reports, eyewitness reports of what people had seen and tried to get a picture of what had gone on. The police were very helpful. They had this video showing the dynamics of the attack, the medical dynamics of the attack, which showed us actually and showed them that it would have taken much longer than we had thought originally all those years before. And so, you know, really, you could expect that there have been some transfer of evidence of materials between the suspects and Stephen. Angela and her team used the witness statements from the earlier investigations to guide their search for evidence. It's worth noting at this point as well that the scientists only had access to the evidence collected in those first few weeks after Stephen had been murdered. It makes what they were to achieve even more remarkable. We started off looking for any paint in samples of Stephen's hair, hair combings and so on, and on the shoulder areas of his upper clothing, because there's some eyewitnesses reported seeing Stephen having been struck with what sounded like a blunt instrument, a pole or something like that, struck over the head at the start of the attack. And a piece of scaffold pole was found in a nearby garden and had been collected at the time. So we looked at this pole with some paint on it. So it was this paint that we looked for. And we didn't find any of that. But what we did notice was that on the outside of his jacket, we noticed quite a number of red fibres. And we were quite interested in these because they were, you know, brightly coloured, easy to see, quite a lot of them. And we worked out, and this sounds boring, but it's important, <laughs> we worked out that they'd actually a polo shirt that he was wearing several layers below. So obviously, as he was putting his clothing on and taking it off and so on, and had resulted in some of the polo shirt red fibres coming into contact with his outer jacket, and we could uh, see them on the surface of it. And they were of different sorts. There were some red cotton fibres and there were some red polyester fibres. That was quite interesting, two different sorts. And so we had these in the back of our mind. You know, it's like many things you notice and you just log somewhere. And so then when we started looking at the suspect's clothing and the fibres that had been found on the outside of them, we started noticing red fibres. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. Well, we'd just compare them with the fibres found on Stephen's clothing. They're probably different, but we'll just have to have a look. To our surprise, we found that actually we were getting matches, both on the cottons and the polyesters. And so this immediately started looking like quite interesting evidence. She phoned me up, I remember it to this day, and said, we found all these red fibres. All these red fibres were here, there and everywhere. Because this third polo shirt 
had shed all over Stephen's outer clothing. Well, it must have. There must be an opportunity for that to have gone on the suspects, and indeed, that that proved to be the case. We expanded our search, and we started looking for other fibres. We noticed that the cuffs and waistband of Stephen's jacket, for example, were made of a knitted material, and we started looking for those fibres, and we found one or two of them on Gary Dobson and David Norris's clothing. So that was really interesting. We now had some more fibres and we decided to extend the range of items that we looked for for Stephen's trouser fibres. And we found some of those on David Norris's sweatshirt. So we were beginning to find we had four different kinds of fibres now. And while they could have theoretically have come from other garments made of the same sort of fibre or containing the same sort of fibre, when you start getting numbers of different fibres like that, you really do start getting strong evidence. And then we thought, well, how do we find more of these fibres? We need some more samples. And so we thought of doing something which, in retrospect, is blindingly obvious, but before then we didn't really do this routinely. We thought, why don't we go back to the original packaging that these items were in? and have a look in there and see if we can find some more fibres. We can empty out all of the debris caught in the seams and the stitching and those sorts of things of these large paper bags in which items are kept. We brushed out these seams and we found, very much to our surprise, in the packaging from Gary Dobson's jacket that there was a flake of blood. And so that was extremely interesting and of course it didn't take us very long to do DNA profiling on that flake and to discover that it matched the DNA and it matched Stephen's DNA. That was a big breakthrough. Just how small was the blood flake which he had found in the bag and the blood residue on Dobson's collar? Would he have been able to see them with the naked eye? Just how tiny is tiny? need a microscope to be able to see them properly and certainly to be able to compare them and test them. And the blood stain in the back of the neck of the jacket. You couldn't have seen that with the naked eye. I think the blood flake from the packaging you would see with the naked eye. You definitely need a microscope for the jacket. What were your emotions when there was a DNA match with Stephen on that blood flake? I mean, are scientists allowed to have emotions? I mean, of course, we are only human. We have emotions like everybody else. But I think we're more concerned with making sure, just because we've got a result, we're then very concerned, what's this result mean? And so we are very careful before we start saying, yeah, that's going to be really useful in this case. We always start thinking about, but what if it's this? What if it's that? So it isn't like we say, ah, here's the evidence. This is it. This is, you know, we're very careful not to get too reliant on what we found until we really know that it is actual evidence and it's not some form of contamination or something like that. When he got the call about Angela's breakthrough finding, DCI Clive Driscoll was at the 15-year anniversary service for Stephen Lawrence, being held at St Martin's in the Field Church in London. So I was actually looking down the aisle of the St Martin's in the Field and basically, I was looking at a big picture of Stephen. And I remember looking at him and thinking, well, I've got to tell you, my old mate, it ain't going to be long now. And the only person I told was Cressida Dick. 
she's quite petite, isn't she? She's quite small. So I actually bent down to whisper in her ear. I dread to think what the public thought I was doing, but I whispered in her ear and I remember what she said. Gosh, oh gosh. Literally from that moment on, I thought we have got a real opportunity here to give some kind of justice to the Lawrence family. A change in the law and a tiny piece of forensic evidence, so small you couldn't see it without a microscope, had suddenly raised hopes in the Lawrence case. But after so many false dawns in the past, would it be enough to get justice? Next time on Stephen Lawrence, the murder that shamed Britain. We're going to give it our best ever shot. We are going to try and right the wrong. I would have wanted to do anything I could to have helped Stephen. Because afterwards you think, oh, maybe I could have done something so that this did not happen. I entered the witness room, I just burst into tears because it was too too much emotion. And I was scared to see Devin Norris and Gary Dobson. The two men accused of killing Stephen Lawrence were brought to the Old Bailey to hear the judge's final instructions. These verdicts will not bring my son back. How can I celebrate when I know that this day could have come 18 years ago? You've been listening to Stephen Lawrence the murder that shamed Britain with me, Stephen Wright.